Amen. Let's go ahead and let's read the text of the book of Jude, and then we'll come back and make some observations uh, generally that we've talked about last week, and then we'll make some more specific uh, applications to us as we uh, move forward this morning. The Epistle of Jude. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, the sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Christ Jesus, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turned the grace of our God into lewdness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he is reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities around them having a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring a reviling accusation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they don't know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, They've run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feasts. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water carried about by the winds, laid autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment on all, convict all those who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they've committed in an ungodly way, and of the, of the harsh things which the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lust, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, Remember the words which were spoken by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some, having compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. What did we say last week would be a good thesis statement, a good summary statement for the book of Jude? A good verse to point to and say, aha, I see that this thought or this, this 
theme seems to be central to everything that he's talking about. What would you say? Verse 3. All right, and what does verse 3 say? He says, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, but what did he end up writing about? All right. Not ungodly people at first, Morris, but you're absolutely right. That is a, a bulk of the text here in Jude. What is, the, uh, what is the reason why it is that he changed his subject from the common salvation to something else? What's the other thing? False teachers. But especially the responsibility of Christians to do what? Contend earnestly for the faith. If you're going to point to a simple uh, verse or a simple statement about what it is that he wants them to do, he says it's about you standing up for what's right. It's about you contending against these ungodly people, against these false teachers, against these uh, people that are turning the grace of God into lewdness. Don't tolerate that. You need to stand up and you need to be uh, uh, conscious of what's right and you also need to contend for what's right. Okay, as you look at the outline of Jude, as we gave last week, he begins by talking about the purpose, verses 1 to 4. He spends, as we mentioned, the bulk of the time of verses 5 to 16, talking about the description of the false teachers, verses 5 to 16, the description. The defense that the Christians make, verses 17 to 23, almost to the rest of it, but you, there in verse 17, you see that? Okay, in contrast to everything else that they're doing, you may underline that in your Bible. But you, here's what your responsibility is, verse 17. He says it again down in verse 20. But you, beloved, but you, beloved, you have a responsibility to be doing these things and not entertaining these false teachers and these ungodly people and these, uh, these dreamers and all these uh, characteristics and what they're doing. But you, these are your responsibilities. Okay, there's the defense about the false teachers. And then lastly, he ends with a uh, verses four, 24 and 25, a word of praise. The, um, the word is doxology, doxology. We sing sometimes in church the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. It's just simply a word of doxa, praise in the Greek. Okay, so that's the way that the book of Jude ends. We'll talk more about that here in just a moment. Um, as we look at uh, Jude, what are some key words that we noticed last week? For those of you that were here, yes, ma'am. Ungodly, ungodly, especially verse 15, uses the word ungodly four times in rapid succession. <laughs> He's talking about ungodliness. Look at verse 4. Certain men have cropped in unnoticed who have long ago been marked out for this condemnation. They are ungodly men who turn the grace of God into lewdness. Verse 18, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lust. That's exactly right. Ungodly is a key word being used six times here in this epistle. What else? Jesus Christ and God. Okay. Christ is used five times. God is used five times. Jesus is used five times. That's 15 times. Plus the word Lord, kurios, is used six times. So there's 21 times there in 25 verses. There's a reference to God, to the Lord Jesus Christ, to, um, our, uh, uh, to the one that's able to keep us. Good. What else? 
excuse me? Beloved, okay, or beloved, depending on how you say it or what part of the country you're from, I guess. I don't know. Um, verse 3, beloved. Uh, we've already marked out verse 17 and 18, or verse 17 and 20. But you, beloved, verse 20, but you, beloved. Beloved is a key word. Why is Jude writing to them? Because he loves them. He wants them to know this is for your good. Again, I wanted to write to you about your common salvation, but I can't. Instead, now I've got this opportunity to write to you to contend earnestly for the faith because I don't want you going down that path that those ungodly people have gone down. We understand that in the context and, well, in a lot of different contexts, really. You talk about children, and when you talk to your children and you tell them, I don't want you being friends with those type of people. I see the difficulty that it is, and I see how much it is that you desire maybe to follow them in their steps, but I don't want you to go down that path. Why not? Because you don't love them? Well, it's because you can see something that they don't, right? Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Don't be deceived. Evil companions corrupt good morals. Hope you're teaching that to our kids and grandkids. That it is that you want to find out the character of a person, look at the friends that they choose. Because before too long, their character is going to rub off on them. Here's people that are among the members of the church, the beloved. And here's people that are not behaving like they ought to. In fact, it seems like they're doing this uh, kind of spuriously, kind of under the surface. And if I make it a point to be around those people or to associate with those people on a regular basis... Well, if they're grumblers and complainers and not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries or authorities, well, what type of person am I going to be tempted to become? Just like them, that's exactly right. Oh, it's hard sometimes. You ever been sitting at a table with somebody and somebody will bring up something that's maybe going on in the church or maybe that they don't agree with or maybe just even in general, I mean, if you're talking about the workplace, and how it is that you can be sitting around a table and say, man, that boss, I tell you what, he is just a slave driver. Oh, yeah, let me tell you exactly what he did this week. Oh, let me tell you what he did when he came by my, my desk. And before too long, sometimes those things have a tendency to spiral out of control until the point where it's just bash the boss, bash the boss, bash the boss. Why do we not think that it can happen in the church? Why do we not think that there's people that will bring their own ungodly lusts and instead of keeping themselves in the love of God, they begin to look at all the things and all the ways that I wish were different in the church. And before too long, you've got a group of people that are not going to be encouraging or edifying, but are just going to seek to tear down and destroy. All right, beloved. Yes, absolutely is a uh, key word. Um, what else? There's one more that, that one would take a, a special look at this morning. Okay, Christ is coming. Uh, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are an ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds which have committed in an ungodly way and all the harsh things that which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Against him. Here's people that are speaking against Christ. Question, is it any different to speak against the church? Why not? Why or why not? Defend your answer. It's his bride, isn't it, Nelda? 
Um, you could also go to Ephesians 1 or Colossians 1 about he is the head of the body. He is the fullness of uh, him who fills all in all. Ephesians 5, he died to purchase the body, to present the body, to present the church a, um, a holy and spotless, a cleansed bride, a perfect bride. And when we speak against Christ, we're not doing what's right. When we speak against the church, which is his bride, we're not doing what's right. We're speaking against the Lord um, who purchased it. We used the example last week that you can say whatever you want to about me, but the minute you start talking about my wife, my bride, them's fighting words. We're going to have some, we're going to have a, a little bit of difficult conversation. Why? Because she's part of me. The two shall become one flesh. That's the way God purposed marriage at the beginning. And to speak against another man's wife, you're speaking against, well, something about him. And he has a responsibility, if he is the man that he's ought to be, uh, to defend her and to stand up for her. Good. What else? I want to look at the Greek word, and you may just write it at the top of your sheet, tereo, T-E-R-E-O, T-E-R-E-O. We have the Lord, the Jesus, Christ, and God occurring 21 times in this epistle. We have the word ungodly six times that's occurring in this epistle. We have beloved at least three times in this epistle. But one of the words that occurs again and again and again in the midst of all those is the verb to keep. That is tereo, T-E-R-E-O. And yours may translate it to keep. Yours may translate it to preserve. Yours may translate it uh, reserved or uh, observe or remain. All of those are uh, synonymous for um, this idea and this concept that comes with this Greek word tereo. I want to look at the five instances, because this word occurs five times throughout this epistle, the five instances of the way that this word occurs and the context in which it does. All right? So in verse 1, right off the bat, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, the sanctified by God the Father, and here's the first occurrence, underline it or circle it, preserved. Preserved in Jesus Christ. Anybody ever make preserves? Why do they call them preserves? It's jelly, right? Or jam? Because they don't spoil. Is there a sense in which Christians that are preserved in Jesus Christ don't spoil? There is. Jesus in John 10 said, uh, uh, the evil one shall never snatch them out of my hands. He's the good shepherd. Again, he's not talking about once saved, always saved. He's talking about as long as you keep walking in the light, as First John would talk about, as long as you continue in the right way, you are preserved. You're not going to spoil the way that the rest of the world is going to spoil. You are preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and grace be or love be multiplied to you. Second instance, <clears throat> verse 6. Verse 6. The angels who did not keep, that word is tereo. They did not keep their proper domain, but left their everlasting, their own abode. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Here's these angels who did not remain preserved. 
they did not remain in their own place, as it were, but instead they chose to leave that place, whatever that means, and left their own abode, and there's judgment coming on behalf of those. Look down at verse 13. He calls these spots in the love feast, verse 12, these ungodly men, verse 4. What does he say in verse 13? They're raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved, tereo, preserved, for whom remains the blackness of darkness forever. <clears throat> Third instance of that. So now it's not just the angels that are, are preserved for judgment, but now these ungodly people he's mentioned are reserved or preserved for judgment, verse 13. Look at verse 20. But you, beloved, and there's instruction to Christians, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep, there's the word, tereo, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking, uh, looking for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal salvation. We are kept, preserved in Christ Jesus, verse 1. There's these angels who didn't keep or stay in their proper domain, but have judgment waiting for them. Here's these ungodly people, verse 13, who, are, uh, who have reserved for them the darkness of blackness forever. Here's the instruction to Christians. You keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. That's your responsibility. You keep yourself right where it is that you ought to be. Last one, look at verse 24. Now to him who is able to, what does your say? Keep you, or keep y'all, if you, for good East Texan, uh, keep y'all from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Here is at the very end of this epistle and a word of praise to the one who is able to continue to preserve us and keep us exactly right where it is. Note how this morphs all the way from the very beginning. You are being kept, preserved by Jesus Christ. Here's this example of these angels who didn't keep their proper domain, but are now kept waiting for judgment. Here's these ungodly people uh, that Jude spends the majority of his time talking about in this epistle who are kept for this judgment. Christians, you make sure that you keep yourselves in the love of Jesus Christ. You make sure you keep yourselves exactly where it ought to be that you stay. Now to him who is able to keep you right where you ought to be and make you what you ought to be. See, this theme of this word that goes all the way from start to finish is very, very important to us. And it's important that we recognize that in keeping ourselves and being kept, how much of that depends on the choices we make? How much of it depends on the greatness of God and his salvation? It's all. But it's also an understanding that there's responsibility that's involved. It's not just about God setting us on this course and keeping us preserved, never to stumble and never to fall again, because, well, verse 21 deals with that pretty succinctly. People that would look at verse 1 and say, see, we're kept, we're preserved, we're not going to spoil at all, ever, ever, ever. 
Well, why did he command down here at the end of the epistle, verse 21, to say, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the salvation that's going to come through Jesus Christ? Both of those are true. I am kept, but I've got to keep. God is keeping in the middle, if you like, in the meat of what he says here in this epistle, the ungodly ready for judgment. That's not where you want to be. That's not where I want to be. But part of that is understanding that it's based upon the choices that we make. We made the choice at the very beginning to obey the gospel, yes? We made a statement of faith, a confession of Jesus Christ. We were baptized into the water for the forgiveness of our sins, raised to walk in newness of life, Romans 6, 2 and 3. And as we came up out of that water, God took us out of this unsaved position and put us into this saved position. God has kept us in Jesus Christ. God has preserved us to this end. God doesn't want us to spoil, as it were. But the responsibility is that we've got to stay there. We've got to keep ourselves there. We've got to be kept there. Otherwise, it may be that we become like those ungodly people who turn the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ into lewdness, verse 4, and instead we become like these people that have, well, who are bearing the characteristics of these people that he spends so much of his time discussing. There is that theme of being kept, and we've got to understand that and understand that in the importance of Jude. What is the chief reason why he wrote this epistle one more time? To contend earnestly for the faith, verse 3. If you haven't underlined that or circled that or scarred that, go ahead and do that. The word contend literally means to become a contestant. To become a contestant. Anybody ever watch The Price is Right? How, uh, how are the contestants chosen? What Eubanks? Who was it? I, I just remember the Bob Barker days. I don't remember the, uh, I haven't watched much of the one with Drew, Drew Carey. Um, but it used to be that uh, you know, the guy with the announcer voice would say, John Gately, come on down, right? And John Gately was now a contestant on the show of The Price is Right. He would come down and he would stand. What's the interest of John Gately at that point? To win some money or to win some stuff. Outrageously taxed, as I understand it, okay? And as you're standing there and you're guessing on the, the daily item up for bids or whatever it is, and they throw out the bids, they're doing those things in the interest of winning, in the interest of, um, well, contending against these others. And sometimes they would pit one, uh, one person against another or give uh, one person opportunity to guess and then the other person opportunity to guess and those things. And the issue is that you are a contestant because you've been called by whoever it is with the announcer voice. And as you come down and as you become that contestant, your responsibility is to do your best. They assume that you're going to want to do your best. Here's Jude calling these Christians to become contestants for the faith. To contend earnestly for the faith. Again, think of Price is Right, that you want to do the best job that you possibly can. You don't want to go away a loser. You don't want to go away with nothing. But here's the other implication of the statement. Become a contestant to contend earnestly for the faith. 
it's kind of implied that they weren't already. It's kind of implied that they maybe were just sitting back and not really doing a whole lot to begin with for the cause of Christ. Again, why would Jude write this epistle at all if the Christians were standing up against these ungodly men like they ought to to begin with? Why spend time telling them about all of their God ungodly characteristics and pointing out the things that maybe they didn't really associate or didn't really connect the dots with um, up, up till that point? And as he's telling these people, you become an active participant or a contestant in contending earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the faith. I want you to understand, Jude says, that standing up for what's right, standing up for the faith that's been delivered, the faith that you are kept in, that's your responsibility. As much as it is the elders, as much as it is the preacher, as much as it is the Bible class teacher and parents and all of the rest of us, we have a responsibility. If we have bought into this faith through the gospel, we have a responsibility to stand up for it. How do we do that? How do we do that? All right, prayer. What do we pray for specifically? Wisdom, okay? Wisdom, absolutely. What's the right thing? What's the right path? What's the right attitude? What's the right action? Wisdom. What else? Courage. Here's wisdom, the knowledge. Here's courage, the impetus, the, uh, the active force that's going to cause us to couple that wisdom with the ability to actually do the standing up. See, we can pray for wisdom. God, give me wisdom in how I ought to answer this person. God, give me wisdom in the right words to say, or God, give me wisdom in the, the approach that I ought to take, or um, what's right, or the right path to know. And once we have that knowledge, what do we need to do? We need to have the courage to stand up and actually act on that. It's not just enough to have the wisdom. It's not just enough to have the courage, but the two coupled together in understanding that's faith. Faith is not just the knowledge of God. It's not just the right action that God wants us to take, but it's taking what God said and saying, I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do that in the way that God tells me to do that. That's faith. And standing up and doing that with the wisdom and the courage. Yes, what else? How else do I do that? Stand up for the faith. Contend earnestly for the faith. Love. Okay, what importance does love have? Okay. All right, Ephesians 4.15, uh, preaching the truth in love. Um, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, yet have not love, I become as a sounding grass with a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all knowledge, but have not love, right? And he goes on to say, if I give my body to be burned and uh, all my possessions to feed the poor, but don't have love, I'm nothing. You can say the right things, but not have love. Is that going to do any good? I can think all the right things, but not have love. I can do all the right things, but not have love as my motivating force. And so it is that saying the right things or thinking the right things or doing the right things without this attitude of love, as Stan was mentioning, uh, just renders the whole thing moot. 
So I need love in my actions. Attitude. I need love in my attitude and going forth and helping somebody to understand that this is not the way that God wants us to go. Oh, there's a lot of us that can put people in their place real easily. You know, I'm going to smack some sense into you. I'm going to tell it like it is. Well, when you try and tell it like it is without an attitude of love, is anybody really ever going to listen to you? Is there really any, ever going to be any kind of good that's going to result from that? Instead, a harsh word stirs up anger. Um, Solomon would say, uh, word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. It's just right, just so. So you've got to have the wisdom, the courage, the love. What else? Excuse me? Discernment. Discernment. The ability to tell right from wrong, good from evil. Uh, the Hebrews writer um, rebuke those Christians there in the uh, book of Hebrews in chapter 5, verse 12 through 14, and saying that, you know, by now you ought to be teachers, but you need somebody again to teach you uh, about the first principles of the oracles of God and have come to need milk and not solid meat. He says discernment or, excuse me, uh, judgment or, uh, I forget how he says it, uh, it uh, solid meat belongs to those who are full grown, who have had their senses exercised to discern both good and evil means I've spent some time thinking about what's right, and I've spent some time thinking about what's wrong. So it is that when you see what's right, I'm going to follow that. When I see what's wrong, I'm going to contend for what's right. Not necessarily against what's wrong, but I may just contend for what's right. Well, wait a minute. The Bible says this. What basis are you saying those things? What basis are you doing the things that you're doing? The Bible says this. I want to understand the juxtaposition of this ungodly lifestyle about how these people have turned the grace of God into lewdness, and I want to hold on to what the Bible says and what God says and what Jude, through inspiration, tells me my responsibility is. Okay? Discernment. I've got to understand the difference between right and wrong, between good and evil, especially in this instance. What else? Excuse me? Study the word. Study the word. Heard the example, I'm sure, of the uh, um, the Secret Service members that uh, have to understand and have to spot counterfeits. They don't show them all of the uh, ingenious counterfeiting ideas and counterfeiting programs and things like that that all these people do in order to do that because they're changing all the time. Instead, what they give them to do is sit down with a $100 bill and a $50 bill and just meticulously study it and 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 study it, and study it until it is that when the imposter, when the fake comes across their desk, they know it immediately in an instant. Why? Not because they've studied all the imposters, but why? Because they've studied the real thing for so long. And when you talk about studying the real thing, being able to stand up for the faith to contend earnestly for the faith means I have to have studied the faith and understand that this is genuine. This is from Jesus Christ. This is from his apostles as, a, as the Holy Spirit inspired them. This is biblical truth. And so it is when a counterfeit comes in, you can spot it in an instant. And you can deal with it by holding it up to the truth and saying, you see the discrepancy here. You see the difficulty that we're having here between these two. What else? How else do I contend earnestly for the faith? 
Not to be bashful goes back to what Daniel said with courage. Yes, absolutely. What else? Worship. All right. What importance does worship have? Turn your attention to the glorification of God. Again, folks, I don't think it's insignificant that Jude at the very end of this epistle turns to a form of worship to offer a praise to God in the face of all this ungodliness and all this difficulty and all these metaphors and, and examples that he uses of ungodly people and ungodly things and, and darkness of blackness forever. And verse 12 is crazy as, as far as uh, the examples it gives. Um, there are clouds without water carried about by the winds, laid autumn trees without fruit, twice pulled up, dead by the roots. What possible connection can a statement like that have to verses 24 and 25? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who is alone wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. What's the connection of worship to everything else he's talked about here in this epistle? What's going to keep us grounded more than anything else? Or not more than anything else, but coupled with everything else we've talked about. What's going to keep you pursuing and walking on the right path that you know that you ought to walk? The promise of salvation, obeying the word, the praise of God. The praise of God. When you have people that are slipping in their faith, what's one of the first things that's usually going to go? Attendance at worship, attendance at worship. Their attendance becomes a little bit sporadic every now and again. Oh, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm working late or I'm going over here, I'm doing this for a little while. And, and okay, well, we missed you. We want you to know we want you back. And, you know, there's a sense in which absolutely we have responsibility to one another in encouraging people to attend worship. But there's also the encouragement in realizing our worship is going to be what keeps us reminded about who God wants us to be and coming before his throne and bowing down with the collective people of God. Again, we're talking about corporate worship like we're going to engage in here in just a few minutes. But there's also the personal private worship to be able to give God glory and praise for the things that he's done throughout our lives. You worship God on a regular during the week? Do you offer up prayers of praise like what Jude offers here in verse 24 and 25, God, thank you so much that you're able to keep me from stumbling. To you alone belongs honor and glory and power and dominion and majesty and all those things that he mentions, both now and forever, amen. It, keeping us centered is keeping our eyes on Jesus and keeping our praise to him and glorifying him. There is the element of worship. Let me give you one as our time is rapidly ending that I haven't heard mentioned. How do you contend earnestly for the faith? Look at the very end of this epistle right above what he mentions here in this praise, verses 24 and 25. <clears throat> Jump back up to verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. 
verse 22 and 23. And on some having compassion, making a distinction. Stop there. On some who? On some what? All right. Morris throws out uh, other Christians that are not keeping them. I appreciate that, using the key word of the book of uh, Jude. That are not keeping themselves in the right way as they ought to. Okay. Who else? Could he be referring to somebody else? On some having compassion, making a distinction. But others, stop. Others what? Others who? But others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment that's defiled by the flesh. That sounds pretty dramatic, doesn't it? That sounds pretty drastic, doesn't it? Just if you were to come across those two verses here at the end of this epistle, last commands that he's going to say before he launches into this praise, last two things he says, on some having compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments that's defiled by the flesh. What are we talking about? Broadly, we're talking about a Christian's responsibility in contending earnestly for the faith. All the way back to verse 3, yes? What's a way that I contend earnestly for the faith? I need love. I need judgment. I need courage. I need wisdom. I need prayer. I need study. I need worship. All of those things are needs in order to keep myself right. But what does that other person need? What does that other person need? He needs us to teach them. He needs us to help them. Does that include even those people that maybe have turned the grace of God into lewdness? Do they need God, God's word, God's revelation to teach them and to help them? Question, does God want them to be reserved for judgment like those angels? Does God want those people to be on the receiving end of Christ's judgment there in verse, what, uh, 14 and 15 that Stan mentioned a little while ago? The ones when Christ comes to judge the world with 10,000 of his saints. Does God want those people to be on the receiving end of that? He doesn't. He doesn't. God's will is that all men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. It's not, God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, 2 Peter 3, 9. We'll talk about Next week, Lord willing, so y'all can read ahead if you'd like. God doesn't want that for anybody. Why is it that Jesus spent so much time dealing with those Pharisees and scribes and lawyers and Sadducees and all those leaders of the Jews who he knew were going to be the first ones to cry out, crucify him, crucify him? Because God loved them. Because God wanted them to change their ways. And in standing up, yes, you're going to find people that may be staunchly turning the grace of God into lewdness. There may be other people that through their course of life and choices are turning the grace of God into lewdness. And they're following in these examples. For example, look back at verse, uh, verse 8. Likewise, these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries or uh, glorious ones. These people, verse 10, 
speak evil of whatever they don't know and whatever they know naturally like brood beasts and these things, they corrupt themselves. Could it be that through influence, that through association, that through spending time together, maybe in these love feasts, somebody sitting at their table is carried away by those people. Somebody is carried away by their manner of life or by their words, and before too long, that person is talking just like they are. These brute beasts, these people that are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, these people that are, um, if you go keep on going, verse 16, they're grumblers, they're complainers, walking according to their own lust. Mouth, great swelling words in order to flatter people to gain advantage. What about those people that are flattered to gain advantage? What about those people that are carried away in a conversation that leads them to bashing the elders of the local church or leads them to <clears throat> pointing out all the wrong things that are going on in the congregation? Jude says, you look at those people with, if I can borrow Vaughn's word, discernment. And you see that there's some that you absolutely need to have compassion on. And you need to go and you need to talk to and say, listen, brother, sister, I know that you've been having a lot of association with this brother over here, but have you considered this is what God wants us to do? Again, it's not even about pointing out everything that this person is doing. It's about pointing them to what's right. You're going to get a whole lot better response than you are if you're just going and poking and poking and poking and poking because the tendency is going to want to be to try and, well, to try and, uh, um, protect that person, want to stand up for that person. Well, there's nobody that likes to have somebody try and poke at their friends, is there? Well, he's just being hes being concerned about the church. The reason why he talks that way about the elders is because he wants, that, he wants them to do what's right. Well, let's look at what's right. Let's look at how people behave. Let's look at what God wants us to do, and let's do that. Here's others that he says, verse 23, save with fear pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment that's defiled by the flesh. There may be more drastic action than has to happen. There may be an opportunity to come and to confront this person and say, have you been saying thus? Have you been behaving like this? Have you been talking about these people? Have you been committing this sin and committing... It seems like there's some kind of sexual immorality that's going on as well. Have you been doing these things? God doesn't want you to be doing those things. What you're doing is you're becoming a spot and love feast, as Jude would say. You're defiling the local church. You're defiling Christ's bride. Don't do that. And giving them an opportunity to answer about those things. What's... 1 Corinthians 5, our kids are learning. Church discipline. Church discipline. Is that done because the church hates a person? It's not. But in realizing that this person's lifestyle that this person's chosen and they're not going to repent of it, what other option do we have? Well, we can let them sit for days, weeks, months, years in the local assembly and hope that they'll come to some kind of understanding about their sin. That's not the actions the Lord Jesus Christ urges us to take. 1 Corinthians 5 talks about that man who's had his father's wife. He's having a sexual relationship with his mother or his stepmother. That text not clear on which one it is. And Paul says, Corinthians, y'all should have warned about this. And instead you're puffed up, you're gloating about that. Now wait a minute. 
Is that kind of like what we're talking about here in Jude? Here's a man who's turned the grace of God into lewdness. Here's a man who has his father's wife. Here's the rest of the church now looking at this man going, <laughs> guess what, Gentiles? We got something y'all don't even have. Were they carried away? Did they need somebody like Paul to stand up and say, Corinthians, y'all don't need to be doing that. And in fact, here's the proper action to take with regard to this man. You put him out. You withdraw your fellowship from him until it is that he makes his life right. Did they do that because they hated him? They didn't. Did they hate the garment that was even defiled by the flesh? That was the proper response, but they weren't even doing that. And so it is. Here's a responsibility that Christians have, not only to reprove, rebuke, exhort, but also when you have somebody that's not necessarily behaving like they ought to, to withdraw from that person, to put them outside and show them, really, church discipline being a picture of what God's ultimately going to do if it is people don't make their life right. Realize, as we close, the responsibility that each one of us have, each one of us, to contend earnestly for the faith involves not only doing things to strengthen us keeping ourselves in the love of God, but also in helping other people that may be moving or removing themselves from that love of God or being removed by the example and the influence of ungodly people. Christ keeps us. God keeps the ones who are ungodly for judgment. We need to keep ourselves in Christ. And we need to recognize that God is able to keep us from stumbling, to remain there. Thank you for your attention this morning.